0: Hello and welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. With national headlines over the past few weeks focused on the Trump administration's policy of placing undocumented migrants and their children in separate detention centers, it seems appropriate to consider the psychological effects of institutionalization. Back in April, Alyssa Roth, A former staff reporter for Marketplace and a regular contributor to various NPR programs spoke with AL Press, a writer based in New York, about her book titled Insane, America's Criminal Treatment of Mental Illness at the Book Culture bookstore in Long Island City. Their wide-ranging conversation examines the barriers to mental health treatments all Americans face and the myriad ways in which mental illness is exacerbated by imprisonment.
1: Thank you all for being here, Um, and um, thank you, Elisa, for uh, your wonderful book and for having me serve as a moderator. So I've done a little bit of reporting on prisons, and I know how difficult it is to get inside them. Your book has scenes at the L.A. County Jail, the Chicago Jail, a women's prison in Oklahoma, among many, many other sort of scenes set behind the walls of these institutions that are notoriously difficult to get into. How did you do that?
2: Some places were very, very welcoming. Um, You mentioned the, the Cook County Jail in Chicago. The sheriff there has been very, very active in bringing awareness to this crisis of people with mental illness in the criminal justice system. And he really feels like it's part of his job to bring people in to see what's going on. So, he even has an open letter on his website to other sheriffs and wardens across the country and one of the things that he mentions as a way that that sheriffs and wardens should respond to this crisis is to invite journalists in. Um, I was invited into a jail in Virginia where a prisoner had died a really awful death and I felt like they were bringing me in and letting me look under the beds and in all the closets to say that, you know, we're doing the best we can, we're clean. Other places, my favorite story about this is when I was doing some reporting in Alabama and I wanted to go into a prison and I wrote to the press person and he said, well, I need a letter from your editor and my editor very kindly wrote a letter saying what I wanted to do and went back and forth and he said, I'm sorry, I can't let you come. And so I got on the phone and I called him and I said, can we talk about this and we can negotiate? And finally, after several back and forths, he said, well, Ms. Roth, I suggest that you investigate another state.
1: <laughs> um, it sounds like my experience in Florida. Yes. Yeah. Well, you do take us inside and tell us, uh, very early in your book, you talk about what you're seeing as a crisis. What is this crisis? And, and tell us a little bit about, about what you actually saw.
2: We can start with the fact that about 50% of the people in our jails and prisons have a mental illness. On the mental health side, we can talk about the fact that for a lot of people, we deal with mental illness on a crisis management level. So in Oklahoma, for example, if you go into a community mental health center with symptoms of mental illness, unless you are actively suicidal or actively psychotic, you will likely not be able to see a psychiatrist or you won't see one for months.
1: Why should we worry about this? The word crisis signals something that um, should alarm us. And if I'm an unknowing book browser looking at at your book, I might think, well, you know, mentally ill people who commit crimes should be put in prisons. It makes the streets safer. It makes the subways safer. Why is this a problem in, in, in any sense?
2: I mean, on a very personal level, something like 90% of people who go into prison will eventually get out. And so if we're treating people with mental illness in our jails and prisons, we should be treating them properly. But when we're talking about criminal justice reform, which we've seen across the political spectrum being embraced as something that we need to do, we talk about race, we talk about poverty, and we really need to talk about mental illness.
1: You mean just the sheer numbers, or or just the fact that people are entering institutions that they shouldn't be?
2: I mean both. We have recreated, we shut down in the middle of the last century, we effectively shut down the state psychiatric hospital system. And while we didn't transfer people from those hospitals to the jails and prisons, we have effectively recreated all of those conditions that we saw in the hospitals. The understaffing, the overpopulation, the overmedication—basically, the warehousing of people—we've recre- recreated that in the jails and prisons.
1: And so, to tell us a little bit more about that, because your your, <clears throat> your book, um, in a sense, uh, tells us that uh, the, the conventional understanding of how and why we got to where we are is wrong, um, and that and that the forces that led us to a situation where half of the people in our jails and prisons are mentally ill or have mental illnesses. Um, what, what drove that? What got us here?
2: I mean, that story that we shut down the asylums and transferred everybody into the jails and prisons is a really nice one. It has a cause, it has an effect, it has an easy solution. If the reason that people are ending up in jails and prisons is that they're not getting treated for mental illness, then all we have to do is treat that mental illness and people won't end up there anymore. But when you dig in a little bit deeper, you can see that, for starters, the population of those hospitals was largely elderly, white, female, and diagnosed with schizophrenia. There were also a lot of people there who had either developmental disabilities or other issues that weren't necessarily mental illness per se. And when you look at the jail and prison population, obviously, it's young, not white, mostly male. And the, the diversity of disease that you see is much closer to what we see in the outside world, just more concentrated. Um, we can, I think, this is really a story about mass incarceration. Um, we've locked up tremendous numbers of people in this country. And in doing so, we've caught huge numbers of people with mental illness, in part through the tactics that grew the criminal justice system to 2 point something million people. So we talk about the war on drugs. If you look at the population of incarcerated people with mental illness, something like 80% of them have a co-occurring substance use disorder. So if you're chasing down people who have drugs, are dealing drugs, selling drugs, near drugs, it stands to reason that you're also going to get a lot of people who have mental illness.
1: And so, so, in a sense, it's a story of the fact that we've locked up too many people generally and this is just one more population that is being locked up disproportionately. Is that? Exactly. But you also talk a lot in your book about the fact that the people who are winding up in prison um, are often getting treatment for the first time, are often coming from communities where alternatives and maybe earlier interventions aren't happening. Tell us a little more about that it's
2: very very difficult to access mental health care in this country particularly if you don't have insurance or you have public insurance Um, i talked about the situation in oklahoma at one point i tried to figure out what it looked like in new york city for somebody who was on medicaid and needed a psychiatrist so how many psychiatrists in the city accept medicaid and how many were accepting new patients And I spent probably two to three days on the phone trying to track down just simply a list of every psychiatrist in the five boroughs who accepted Medicaid. And I couldn't do it. And I was doing it not worrying about minutes on my cell phone, I was doing it without worrying about where I was gonna sleep that night, I wasn't worrying about refilling my prescription. I had all the time in the world and I couldn't figure it out. And I finally went to one of the public hospitals to the Medicaid office and a very nice lady handed me a sheet of paper that had the name of five different plans on it. She said, well, it really depends which plan you're on. You're going to need to go online and see who the psychiatrists are and then call them and see if they're accepting patients. I don't know who has that kind of time and energy and wherewithal to figure that out, even if you didn't have a mental illness and have all these other extenuating circumstances to worry about.
1: In the reporting on this that I've done, uh, which took place in Florida where you do some of your own reporting, there was a report done, I think it was in 2008, uh, in which a task force that the state put together called the prison system the the unfortunate and undeserving safety net for mentally ill people, particularly mentally ill people who were poor and came from disadvantaged communities. How typical is that story?
2: I think it's true in every city and every state in this country. Um, It's just very, very difficult to get health care and then people get caught up. Um, Prisoners are the only group in this country who have a constitutional right to health care, and that includes mental health care. So it's not that people are going to jail to get treatment, but it's where they're ending up getting treated.
1: And what's the quality of the treatment they get?
2: For the most part, terrible. Um, The case that I looked at in Alabama was a young man who had been diagnosed as a six or seven year old and had been getting some treatment in the community through his life. He, He ended up in prison, I think in his early 20s, was terribly sick, he had bipolar disorder among other issues, was terribly sick and knew he needed help, repeatedly asked for the help and just didn't get it. He (laughs) described therapists who would come by every two months and talk to him through a cell door and I've talked through those cell doors it's really hard to hear what the other person is saying just to say good morning how are you doing let alone anything more complicated or intimate that might be involved in a in a doctor's appointment. Um, He would repeatedly cut himself he was on a unit it was supposed to be the the unit for the people who were most Sick in the, the system, and that was the kind of treatment he was getting. He was effectively in solitary confinement, although they didn't call it that. It was he was in a cell by himself and rarely got out, which contributed to his his sickness.
1: You explore that in a chapter that maybe has the, the most shocking title of of any of your chapters. Um, I think it's sanctioned torture. Uh, most people associate torture with Abu Ghraib uh, or Guantanamo or more likely with what you know, thuggish foreign regimes did in the past to um, political dissidents. Are you suggesting torture is actually rampant in our prison system as, as currently constituted?
2: I think we have to differentiate between the kinds of torture that you wrote about in Florida, which is the unsanctioned kind. So this was a prisoner, maybe you should tell this part of it.
1: Um, sure. Uh, so I wrote I wrote a story about um, a mental health ward at, at uh, a prison called the Dade Correctional Institution, where prisoners were pretty routinely beaten, verbally accosted, um, humiliated, starved, and then uh, eventually it came out, subjected to a form of horrific torture in a rigged up shower that a group of guards had set up to basically to torture, to punish, um, and, and torment uh, mentally ill uh, prisoners who, were on, who had gotten on the wrong side of them. And uh, they did this to a number of the inmates uh, at this facility. And in um, June of 2012, uh, they took a prisoner named da- Darren Rainey, who had been arrested on a cocaine possession charge, um, and put him in this shower and he collapsed and died. His body was covered in burns. Um, 90% of his body was covered in burns. No one investigated this. Um, It was detailed in a a heavily redacted report that wasn't initially released. There was no uh, effort to hold anyone accountable until the story was leaked by an inmate who heard Rainey screaming from this shower uh, cell. And uh, eventually it made the Miami Herald. I wrote about it in the New Yorker. It became, as you say, a kind of um, you know, a, a horror story, much like the one uh, from Rikers uh, that people have read about probably in The New York Times, where the abuse was deliberate, systemic, intentional. But there's another kind of abuse that, that maybe you're suggesting is, is maybe even more common?
2: I mean, to me, being to have a severe mental illness and to be locked in jail or prison is in itself a form of torture. Um, to not be getting the treatment that you need to be kept in a tiny cell 23 hours out of the day to be kept from your friends and family is a form of torture. But more specifically, we talk about things like solitary confinement, um, which is used as a form of punishment. Um, It's being put, as many of you know, into a room the size of like a New York City bathroom so a small bathroom a a man standing in the center of a room can reach both walls with his hands often no windows and no contact with anybody else and this is something that we've known for at least 200 years can trigger mental illness in people who didn't have it before and can really exacerbate the problems for somebody who already has it this is perfectly legal but really almost exclusively extrajudicial. So you're not sentenced to time in solitary confinement. It happens after you go to jail or prison and correctional officers decide that you've broken a rule and decide to send you to solitary confinement often without telling you when you're gonna get out. So you can be sent there for indefinitely, effectively. And then adding to this is that you can get in trouble while you're in solitary for breaking the rules and have more time added on. I mean this is widely used. It's you, it's it's called by a variety of different names so it's hard to know exactly how many people are in solitary but um, something like 80,000 people on any given day are in some form of solitary confinement. Not all of them obviously have a mental illness but It's also very hard to know how many do because sometimes you put somebody in without it and they come out with symptoms of mental illness. But there are other forms of torture too. Um, the, The man I wrote about in Alabama, when he would get in trouble they would deny him visits with his family. And he would beg to see, he, he, would, he would cut himself sometimes and say, why do you do that? And he said, because I wanted to see my father and I haven't been able to see my father. Or people in solitary are sometimes cut off from having letters even. So there's all sorts of forms of, of torture that we see that are perfectly legal and part of, just part of the system.
1: What about force, um, excessive force? How common is it?
2: And we don't know how common it is, in part because it's so hard to get in, but we know that it happens and it happens a lot. One of the more astonishing forms of it that I've encountered um, are what are called cell extraction. So if somebody is supposed to come out of their cell and doesn't want to for whatever reason, um, the corrections officers suit up in what's really riot gear. They've got the shields and the masks and the helmets. Um, Often they have pepper spray, and they'll basically break into the cell and pull somebody out. I've watched people suit up for it, and I've watched videos of actual extractions, and they're absolutely terrifying, even if you're not the subject of the extraction.
1: And by the way, um, just as a a footnote to your comment about (laughs) us not knowing how many people are actually in solitary confinement, um, the mental health unit in this Florida prison was not called solitary confinement, um, but every cell in it was a solitary confinement cell, and the inmates in it were, were let out for one hour a day, although often they weren't even let out for one hour a day because they wouldn't let them into the, the rec yard. But so, and, and it seems from your reporting you found similar situations where it wasn't called solitary, but essentially it was. Um, it was putting people in isolated cells, Pretty much all the time.
2: And in some cases, it's not necessarily intended as punishment. So in LA County, on the the mental health units, people are kept in single cells because the jail has determined that it's too dangerous for them or for their cellmate to have a cellmate. But it ends up being solitary confinement, and the, the officers will bring them out for their hour to a day. In LA County, for most of the people when you come out, it's not like you come out and sit and talk to other people. You're chained to a table like a dog. Um, so you can't even really walk around. Or if you're, if you're well behaved, sometimes they'll take you to the wreck yards, which again, to use an animal metaphor, it looks like the dog pens that you see like at a kennel. So somebody can run back and forth, but it's, it's you know from there to there.
1: The prison I looked at was, was a men's prison. A lot of the scenes in your book are about facilities housing male uh, prisoners. Are they the only ones affected?
2: Women prisoners actually have much higher rates of mental illness than male prisoners. The numbers get a little bit skewed because when we look at the overall population of jails and prisons, there are so many more men than women. But among the female prisoners, you see much, much higher rates of mental illness. And in some cases, you're seeing the mental illness being made worse by the the confinement. So in a lot of cases, the women are the sole caretakers of the children. And when they get incarcerated, they've left these children behind. So I met several people in Oklahoma who had either already lost custody of their kids or were terrified that they were going to lose custody of their kids and so regardless of everything else that that was going on they had tremendous levels of anxiety and depression because they were worried about their families
1: so it's actually a higher percentage of women prisoners at this point who sort of fall into the category than men even though the aggregate is is yes
2: the absolute numbers are lower but the percentages are much higher and when you look at Trauma, like the number of, of people who've who've experienced trauma in their lives up to this point, in women, it's almost all of them have experienced serious trauma.
1: You you spend a lot of the book detailing these horrific, fairly horrific cases. It's it's not easy reading. It's it's important um, reading. But you also do something that I think is, is somewhat rare in books that are such. You know, direct indictments of the criminal justice system. You don't talk in a condemning way about the people who are on the other side of this, inside these institutions. I'm speaking of corrections officers and also some of the mental health providers. Um, what what does this crisis, as as you put it, um, mean for them?
2: It's easy to say that this system tortures the people, the prisoners who are caught in the system. But I think that it really is a form of torture to everybody who's involved in it. So you talk about corrections officers who are, in some cases, quasi-law enforcement. In other cases, they're actual law enforcement. So like in Los Angeles, it's sheriff's deputies who are, um, who are responsible for the care of these people. They're the same deputies who would stop you for a traffic stop in unincorporated LA County, for example. Um, But for the most part, they're underpaid, um, overworked. I heard stories in Florida of people who would try to leave at the end of a 12-hour shift, and they literally would not open the gate. Um, They said, sorry, you're working a double shift. I heard a couple of stories that I was not able to corroborate of corrections officers actually calling the cops, um, saying that that they were being held captive in the prison because they couldn't get out to go home. And I think worst of all is that they're not trained for this. It isn't what they signed up for, but it's also not what they trained for. So they are effectively working as a psychiatric technician or some kind of a low-level mental health clinician, and they've received little or no training And then on top of it, and this is true across the board, not just for the corrections officers, but they're being subjected to the same unpleasant circumstances of working in a jail or a prison. So the noise, the chaos, the pat-downs, the lockdown. So when the jail goes on lockdown, if something happens, they will shut the whole jail and there's no movement. So... Doctors describe how frustrating it is when you're ready to go home and you can't go pick up your kid from school because the jail is on lockdown, or worse, cases where you're witness to something like a horrible beating of a prisoner and you feel like for your own safety you can't intervene in any way um, because you may be subject to some form of violence.
1: What about um, the other group of people who work in these facilities, the mental health counselors, the staff, um, how should we view their role in all of this?
2: I met some really amazing doctors and psychologists and other clinicians who really felt drawn to do this work and felt like this was their calling, this was something that they were meant to do and that they were really making a difference by going in and trying to make the best of a terrible situation. So here at Rikers, we've heard horrible stories about what's happening there. But I think that, especially lately, the mental health staff has been doing phenomenal work. They've developed a bunch of behavioral health units that are really designed to mimic the behavioral health units that you'd see in a regular hospital. Um, there are others. I one person who used to, a physician who used to work in a, in a prison system said, you know, nobody graduates from, from medical school and says, hey, I want to go work in a prison. Um, it, there too, it's underpaid, under resourced. It's a very, very tough population to work with. So in some cases you're seeing the absolute toughest cases because these are people who have lasting mental illness that's never been treated properly. Um, in a very untherapeutic environment, and these clinicians are some of the least qualified people to be doing it. So
1: let, let me push, push back against the, the idea that they're just <laughs> caught in the system like everyone else. At that prison in Florida, they were starving prisoners. They were torturing, torturing them. Um, they killed a man. Uh, they could have killed others. They actually did kill another prisoner. Um, sometime later, another prisoner died in that, in that. And none of the mental health staff, um, with the, with one exception, um, challenged the guards. Said, you know, this is unacceptable. You can't do this. It's it's a violation of basic rights. Shouldn't the staff that are in these facilities, um, who are who are in effect there to serve patients, shouldn't they be standing, in some ways, uh, against some not just the the obvious abuse? but even things like solitary confinement.
2: Solitary confinement is an interesting piece of this because the, the clinicians talk about this problem of dual loyalty. So on the one hand, you are what the, the phrase that people use is guests in their house, meaning this is a corrections facility, a correctional facility, and you are there to serve that purpose. And you're subject to their rules. Um, and so that's true in terms of you're supposed to follow their rules it's also true in terms of you're dependent on them for your own safety there are certainly plenty of people in jail or prison that you wouldn't necessarily want to be left alone with so I heard a lot of stories from psychologists and psychiatrists in particular about when a corrections officer is angry with you if you've made the the powers that be mad you're not going to get access to your patients or you're a young woman um, social worker let's say who's locked in a cell with a big burly guy with a psychotic disorder and the officer just kind of wanders away so you're you're beholden to them on that side Um, at the same time as a clinician you're supposed to be healing people and taking care of people and so you're left in this this odd place so i started talking about solitary confinement often clinicians will be asked to determine so so some jails and prisons have started limiting the use of solitary confinement for people with mental illness and so what happens is they'll take the the prisoner to the clinician and say well is this person fit to, to be in solitary? And it puts the, the clinician in this very awkward position of uh, on multiple levels. So you don't want to be determining whether your patient is fit or not. You don't want to be subjecting your patient to that. And in a larger sense, by saying that some people are fit and some people are not, you're implicitly suggesting that solitary confinement is okay in some way.
1: And by the way, I've heard that, that- that issue, um, the, the difficult situation of people on the front lines of that. Um, there, are, there are people like Ken Applebaum, who, who uh, was the director of the mental health um, system in the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. And he has tried very hard to push professional organizations, the APA, the psychiatric associations, to say something about this as organizations um, to take a stronger stand, they do. They have put out various policy statements, but they tend to kind of do the thing you mentioned of, in a sense, nodding to um, society, to the Department of Corrections, to the the um, criminal justice system that this really isn't our business. This is for you to kind of set the terms for. And he and and a few others have taken the the, the position that that's not good enough. You know that if we if we think this that anyone in a severe, who has a severe mental illness, or even just a mental illness, um, will likely deteriorate uh, in solitary confinement. As an organization, they have to have a stronger policy on that. And I wonder if, if, that, if, if that makes sense to you, that, that in a sense we need more light shed on this and stronger positions taken from the outside, um, rather than just leaving it to the people who are inside.
2: I mean, I think part of the problem is that because people don't know what is going on in the people on the outside, we don't know what's happening there. And so it becomes hard to say this is not acceptable. So when you talk about solitary confinement, I don't think that most people realize how common it is. Or we think it's what we do to the Hannibal Lecters of the world. And of course, they should be in solitary confinement. And so it's very difficult to to get people to, to have that kind of an outcry, because I think there's this sense, whether spoken or not, that the people who are there deserve to be there. Um, I think there's also been legally a reluctance to step into that jail and prison um, world. And in, in the case of jails, for instance, they're run at a county level. You have a warden who's sitting there with his little fiefdom, and a lot of what goes on there is is nobody's business. Nobody knows.
1: That's a very dark. That's that's, that's appropriately, <laughs> appropriately appropriately appropriately. Um, you know, it's, it's also an indictment of, I think, implicitly. Um, I mean, it's true that that a lot of people don't know, but it's also true that a lot of people don't want to know. Um, in other words, that that um, you know, we do actually have some awareness that solitary confinement is used. Um, certainly, the professional organizations are aware of it but we don't necessarily dwell on it. It's like it's like this inconvenient thought that we have and and this gets to in in a sense it gets to the 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 third part of your book which is more hopeful and is is less in the indictment mode and and much more a kind of plea for alternative approaches. Um, Tell us a little bit about you know that that third section of the book, what's in it, and why you put it there, why you think you know um, maybe there's some room for
2: hope about this? There's some room for hope. (laughs) I was very heartened that just about every single person I spoke to for this book, whether it was the prisoners and their families or the prosecutors or the defense attorneys or the judges, you name it, there was absolute agreement that what we're doing is wrong and it's not serving anybody it's not serving the people who are locked up it's not serving those people that i just talked about it's not serving any of us and so that to me is hopeful that we at least acknowledge that that this shouldn't be happening and we have to somehow change it the hard part is that the criminal justice system although we talk about it as a system with a capital s is really a whole series of little tiny systems and so the change is going to have to come in those little tiny pieces. And we're starting to see that. So there's a move to train police officers, and this has been going on for a while now, to train police officers who are the first responders in many, many cases to a mental health crisis how to better respond, how not to go in and escalate the situation, but rather to come in and and de-escalate, see how they can be helpful, how they can um, find a way to get the person the help that they need. Um, The second piece of that is it's great to train the police officers how to respond, but if there's no place to take them, the police end up taking those people to jail anyway because it's the fast, easy, doable solution. If you've ever been to the ER, you know that you can be sitting there for two days before you see somebody. And no cop wants to do that, no cop supervisor wants his or her officers sitting there for hours. Um, So we saw that in San Antonio, they've created a center where police officers can bring people in crisis, they can be treated for a couple of days, and then connected to services in the community. It's been very, very successful, and it's being copied all over the country. And then we're seeing diversion programs, so ways to get people out of the criminal justice system when it's very obvious that they don't belong there and convincing them to go seek treatment and helping them find that treatment rather than locking them up.
1: Can you say uh, just a little about the program in Miami that you write about um, that that Along those lines, this
2: is one of those diversion programs. There's a judge, Steve Lifman, who's really been at the forefront of changing things on the the sort of once you're into the judicial system side of things. Um, and basically, in Miami, if you are picked up on a nonviolent, mostly misdemeanors, but a few felonies at this point, you will be almost automatically diverted out of the system, connected to treatment. Um, You have to come back and check in with him or one of his fellow judges um, periodically to make sure that you're on track, Um, but they've been so successful they actually managed to shut down an entire wing of the the jail there, and that's being copied
1: all over the country, yeah.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: I want to give the audience a chance to ask questions, Um, but one more question uh, for you. Um, How unique is America? in all of this, uh, you know, this is not an easy population to treat humanely, generally speaking. How much worse are things here than, say, Norway, or France?
2: Or, and I'm not not asking you Everything's better in Norway. (laughs) um, How unique are we? We can start with the criminal justice system. We incarcerate, by orders of magnitude, more people than any other country. So when you look at the next, the, our closest contender, which I think is Russia, um, we're still like we're here and Russia's here. Um, so there's that part of it where we're off the scale. Um, and then there's the healthcare side of it. Um, so you talk about Norway. I visited a prison in Norway, which was um, nicer than some of the public schools I've been in here. Mm-hmm. Um, Most jails you walk in and you're hit with this disgusting mix of like dirty laundry and bodies and I don't know, urine, just awful smells. And in Norway you walk in and it smells like coffee and cinnamon buns. (laughs) Um, But because they have universal health care and they have health records that are accessible it is extremely rare we talked earlier about people who are coming in and getting treated for the first time and it's really common that somebody gets booked in jail and that's the first time they've been properly assessed for mental illness it's the first time they're treated for it and the psychiatrist (coughs) in norway told me that rarely happens the only time she's seen it is when somebody has been um a substance user for so long that he's really just completely off the grid But otherwise, not only can they go in and see that somebody has been treated, but they can go in and say, "Okay, this guy had a break when he was 18. We treated him with X, Y and Z and it worked. He had another break when he was 22. That didn't work. Um, So they they start very much ahead of the game, whereas here, often even coming from jail to prison, which is it's technically not the same system, but it's the, the same path. Somebody arrives in prison and they're starting this detective work all over again to figure out what's wrong with somebody and what got them there.
1: It is a very striking point you make in the book that um, because of a Supreme Court decision where an inmate challenged um, the system, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that there is a constitutional right to health care <coughs> for prisoners. For prisoners. Um, <laughs> not for. Every- ordinary regular American citizens, which would be socialism. We don't want that. Um, so uh, mm-hmm. anyway, uh, should we turn it over? Yeah. Um, in, unless you feel we we haven't. Okay, um, let's uh, let's have some questions from the audience if folks uh, want to participate.
0: Um, just going off of that point, I mean, do you see this as a,
2: primarily a health care problem? I see it as a parallel track problem. So we have a health care problem. We don't, as I said, we can't access mental health care. It's hard to access and it's it's hard to stay in the treatment once you get it like you you might get your your one visit with the psychiatrist and that's it um but it's also a criminal justice problem like we need to stop locking up so many people
3: well i'm speaking from having worked at a prison in ohio i ran an art collective there and it was an honor camp prison so very sort of specific but in the prison there were a lot of programs run by inmates that were mental health programs like Thinking Positive was one of them, and like all these different programs, art therapy, other, other things, um, that were the most um, seemingly effective, talking to inmates about them. And I'm wondering if that's something that you saw a lot of in your research, or not really, like non-professionals running, or inmates themselves running these mental health programs. We're starting to see more
2: of it. So Pennsylvania recently embraced a peer, I forgot what they call it there, but something like a peer support program, and so they're training prisoners with mental illness to then help and provide guidance for their fellow prisoners, which is something we see out in the community, peer support networks and peer support workers. And then there are outside groups that do come in. In LA County, I saw somebody doing, I think it was... Either alcohol awareness or an AA meeting something like that a volunteer from outside I think in part because the budgets are so low for any kind of of treatment the the prisons really depend on volunteers from the outside to to fill in some of those
3: gaps when the cops bring in people just for being what are they charged with like if they drop them off at the jail
2: um, it's really easy to find something to charge people with. Um, this is not mental health, but I was out on a ride-along with state police officers who were trying to catch people who were texting and driving. And the officer said, you know, I can stop any car I want to because there's always a pretext. The taillight is out, you didn't signal when you changed lanes, and we know that, that officers often use that to arrest, disproportionately arrest um, people of color. Um, but in the case of somebody with mental illness, it could be um, sleeping on the sidewalk, it could be disorderly conduct, um, it could be menacing passers-by, I mean, you, you name it, they can find a, a way to, to charge them.
1: Just building off that, um, we didn't really talk much about race and class, and how much this is actually a story not about healthcare writ large or mental illness writ large, but actually about concentrated disadvantage in certain places that then becomes catastrophic uh, when you add mental illness into the picture. So for communities of color, poor communities, is that really where public concern should lie and where, the, where the, this problem is, or does it transcend those, those barriers?
3: It's
2: both. I mean, you do see wealthy people and white people picked up, people with mental illness picked up. The story of Brian Sanderson, who is a firefighter in in Virginia, um, developed bipolar disorder, and was arrested the first time because he was riding an elevator in a in a hotel naked. And they called the cops on him. He was charged with indecent exposure, for which you can spend three years in prison in South Carolina, um, even though it's a misdemeanor. (laughs) Yes. Um, He ended up spending six months in jail before a judge told him to get out of town and not come back. Um, But it was six months that he was largely in solitary confinement because he was convinced that the corrections officers were going to kill him. Um, And so he attacked one of them, and they threw him in solitary. Um, But it is largely about race, because we can't talk about criminal justice in this country without talking about race, and without talking about poverty. And they all overlap and intersect, and it's hard to pull out, you know, is somebody not getting mental health treatment because they live in a neighborhood where all the clinics have been shut down. And so it all goes together, but if you happen to, to fit in Two or three of those categories, the likelihood that you're going to get arrested goes up exponentially, uh, and then the outcomes of like how well you do to get out—it's the same problems that we see in communities of color generally. I was at Rikers visiting one day. I was in line at the um, to go in. You have to wait in line. Cause you have to go through security, and there was a woman ahead of me was from Long Island, she was white, clearly affluent, um, and sort of perplexed by this very complicated system where you have to have quarters for the lockers and you have to take off your shoes and all these things. And so I was talking her through some of it and I asked her, she was there visiting her son who had been picked up on a heroin charge of some sort. And I said, oh, that's terrible. What's, you know, what, what, what are the prospects for his case? Do you have any idea what's going on with it? And she said, well, our attorney's going to come see him this afternoon or tomorrow and we'll know more. And with that one sentence, she had differentiated herself from almost everybody in that line with us and her son from almost everybody who was locked up because he had an attorney who was going to come visit him. And he had an attorney that his mother was paying for. Um, and so I'm sure that his outcome was <coughs> would be different.
1: That definitely resonates with, again, with the reporting I've done. Um, question, yes.
3: Um, I was really curious or interested to hear you talk about Chicago um, and that system welcoming, saying that journalists should be welcomed into prisons. Because when I think of torture and I think of America, I definitely think of the Chicago PD and the John Birch cases. Um, And I was kind of curious then, you've spoken a bit about the relationship obviously between police and mental illness in the prison system, but I'm curious a bit more like if one side of that, if you are in a city or town where the police department is, is rather progressive, does that affect The way mental illness is in the prison system or if the prison system is really trying to attack how that sounds negative but you know forcefully deal with how mental illness does that affect what the police officers are doing like what is that relationship
2: it depends we're talking about but there's often very little relationship. So there were places where I would talk to the sheriff and he would say, I just, I can't deal with it. I have too many people with mental illness in my jail. I don't want them here. And I said, well, do you ever go to the cops and say, hey, stop bringing these people to me, take them to the hospital, take them here. And he said, oh, I can't do that. That's, that's their business. They make the calls there. Um, And Illinois is a really striking example because the prisons are terrible. And they've done a terrible job of dealing with people with mental illness. They've been subject to a whole bunch of lawsuits about how they treat people with mental illness. Um, One of the people I write about who was dealing with solitary confinement was in prison in Illinois. Um, He told them that he was depressed, and I think he said he was suicidal, and they threw him into a cell by himself with no clothes. And he was freezing and miserable, because who wouldn't be? But the jail has really taken it, I mean the jail, Tom Dart, the sheriff, has really made it his mission to try to improve things. Um, so they, in Chicago, they screen very, very early before you're even booked into the system. You're brought in and you're in the, the, the pens, they call it. Um, they're basically like big cages where they throw everybody until they can be booked. Um, and they do a mental health screen of every single person who comes in there to try to figure out have they been treated before, have they been diagnosed, what medication are they on, try to get them the medication. This is a real problem where people come in and say, I've been on this medication, I need my medication. And this is true not just for mental health care, this is true, some of the diabetics will come in and say, I need my insulin, and it might be three days before they can get that. Um, so. LA, that's something that LA County is really working on um, is to speed that up, but it really depends which little piece of the, sy- the system that we're talking about.
0: Did you come to this story through the lens of mental illness or through the lens of mass incarceration? Like, did it, was it that this was a particularly egregious example of the mass incarceration system and this spoke to you or you sort of dove into the question of mental illness and it became this much bigger story.
2: I was looking at criminal justice and I kept hearing these stories about race and about poverty, but I kept, the mental illness kept popping up. And so you talk about solitary confinement and you realize that it's really, it really is about mental illness in a lot of ways. And it felt like nobody was really talking about it. You'd see a story here and there about the largest psychiatric institutions being the jails or a case like the Darren Rainey case, but it didn't feel like it was being understood in a systemic way. And when I started traveling around the country and going to all these different jails and different courts, I realized very quickly that that this was really a national crisis, but because the way the criminal justice system works, it was playing out in very local ways.
3: Hi. Let me ask you about the definition of mental illness and the diagnosis of mental illness in these persons, which must be pretty variable, and I, I imagine are grounds for abuse. Uh, and in relationship to that, do you have any data on the racial composition of those who are diagnosed with mental illness? In other words, are more blacks or Latinos, especially in Latino? heavy populations. Are they diagnosed with mental illness more than Caucasians would be?
2: The definition question, or the diagnosis question, in the jails and prisons is a really tricky and interesting one, because your count of how many people you're dealing with with mental illness varies dramatically by how you define it. Um, so we saw it in New York when they, when the state said, okay, you can't put people with mental illness, or with severe mental illness, I think was the, the designation, into solitary confinement. All of a sudden, the numbers of people with severe mental illness dropped dramatically. And I don't think it was because they were suddenly being cured. Um, the same thing at Rikers, when they, when they did it, some of the, the attorneys in New York were saying to me, that's fine, but who's deciding whether my client has a mental illness, and how are we defining that? So at Rikers, they actually consider PTSD among, they, they consider among serious mental illness, they consider bipolar, schizophrenia, major depression, and PTSD, but a lot of places don't count it that way and it makes it very hard to figure out even the extent of the problem because because everybody has their own way of accounting and in Alabama where they were subject to a whole series of lawsuits and one of the pieces that came out in the lawsuit was that the gatekeeper on deciding whether you saw a psychiatrist to get a diagnosis was somebody who had very very little medical training and so the judge in this case talked about, you know, I go to my physician and it's some kind of a, um, not even a physician's assistant, like somebody who takes my blood pressure, but that um, mostly untrained person is not deciding whether I get to see the doctor or not. But what was happening in the prison system was that it was this very, very low level clinician who was making that judgment call. And so as a result, when you look at Alabama's numbers they had way 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 too few people with mental illness for a system of their size
3: looping in with that question with the PTSD what you said about the female prisoner population interested me because um, it sounds like a lot of what you're talking about not entirely but a great portion of it is trauma and the experience of trauma before being incarcerated and then the experience of trauma during incarceration can is there any sort of different like differentiation you saw or can you just speak to that issue?
2: I mean leaving aside things like rape by officers which we know happens um, or just even lower level sexual harassment sexual assault if you look at this population many many of whom have experienced partner violence, partner-related trauma. There is a re-traumatization of coming in and being yelled at and being told to take off your clothes or being told to be patted, you know, that you have to get patted down. And all of these things contribute to to the whole mess.
3: Just... Wondering because I haven't read the book, but do you talk about substance abuse and you know, obviously the Surgeon General came out with the report About it being a disease. Do you talk about it? If not, why? Why not?
2: I talk about it in the context of It can be very difficult to get treatment for substance use disorders in jail and prison a lot of the Pharmaceuticals that are used on the outside to treat substance use disorders are not allowed in jail and prison because they're considered currency um, and they're traded. Alcohol use is actually a big problem and it's one of the things that jails in particular worry about is that people come in and they're detoxing and if you don't identify it, it can be very, very dangerous. But there's not, like there's not enough mental health treatment, there's also just not enough substance use treatment in the jails and prisons.
1: I want to ask a question um, about, which we didn't talk about, but uh, about money. Um, a lot of the public um, may hear about this and say, well, it's terrible, it's, it's unfortunate, but you know, you read today in the front page of the paper, another shooting, another person who showed signs of mental illness, sh- they should have been in prison. The sort of impulse from a public safety perspective to say, You know this is how society should deal with this why what what, what would you say to that person and can you bring the sort of question of resources how much this is costing um, into that
2: incarceration is really really expensive Um, incarceration of people with mental illness is more expensive Um, because in a lot of cases they require more guards, or the the prisons think they require more guards, you're single selling people instead of double selling people. We are very quick to agree to spend money on public safety. Um, So building more jails and prisons in the interest of protecting all of us is often a very popular thing to do or to promise to do. But to spend that money on the front end to prevent mental illness is unsexy. Nobody wants to do that.
1: You think that could change?
2: I'd like that, to think that it that, can change. That,
1: I mean, because it really, really captures what the nutshell of that 2008 state task force report in Florida was, um, you know, we're, we're wasting money. Um, we're, we're, we, we spend all this money on the back end, um, putting people in prison, clogging the court system, um, you know, putting people in hospitals um, so that they stabilize and then go to court and then get sentenced and then go to prison. Sometimes multiple um, times. Often for in, in the case, uh, in the cases that were highlighted in the report, often for disorderly conduct, or sleeping on a bench or you know showing up at a um, fast food joint, uh, w- confused and bothering someone and getting arrested, then attacking the officer and boom, you have an assault of an officer charge. All of these resources poured into all of that very few resources in Florida's second last in the country in spending on community mental health and the report was basically saying look from a practical point of view this is so short-sighted as I say that that report was 2008 I'm not sure how much progress you can actually say was made in the decades since but you know it seems like the progress that has been made on the mass incarceration question has been when it's framed as a waste of resources the argument that it's racist, the argument that it's
3: um, appalling Unused, and yeah.
1: unjust, um, didn't get very far until people were told, well, wait a minute, as a state you spend more on your prisons than, than on, you know, p- higher education. Can a similar kind of argument be made about this?
2: We don't like to spend money on health care, even when it's physical health care, even when there's no real stigma around it, even when it's something that We all know people who have it, and there's no shame to having it. I think we see in some cases, we'll now provide health care for pregnant women, let's say, or for kids. And we acknowledge that we need to treat that population in part because the cost of not treating them is too expensive down the line. But I think it's going to take a really long time to get people to come to that conclusion on mental health care.
1: All right. Um, Thank you very much. Um,
0: Thank Thank you for coming. If you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure to check out an upcoming talk at Book Culture on Monday, July 30th with Jeff Weaver. Weaver, manager for Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, will be discussing his book, How Bernie Won, Inside the Revolution That's Taking Back Our Country, and Where We Go From Here. All events are free and open to the public. Visit bookculture.com for more information. The Harper's Podcast is produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is Cut and Run by Febrifuge. Refuge, all rights reserved. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. Visit harpers.org to subscribe.